Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, we, we, uh, we just pray, Lord. We always pray for your spirit, Lord. We need your spirit to be here, Lord, to illuminate scriptures, Lord, to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear, Lord, to give us faith to believe, Lord. So would your spirit be moving here and active, Lord, in our hearts, in our minds, Lord. Bless this time. Teach us what, what it is that you are communicating to us, Lord. When, when Mark, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these, these scriptures, Lord, would you uh, bless this time, Lord? I pray that today would be a day of change in our life, Lord, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but doers. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the blessing of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, you can have a seat. I know this is kind of random. But have you guys ever wondered what Hanukkah is about? So on, on December 25th every year, Christians around the world celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And Jews celebrate Hanukkah. Now Hanukkah wa- was started to, to memorialize uh, the, the Jews' victory over Gentiles, right? When they, when they, when they were delivered from Gentile rule. So... Uh, Judah Maccabee led a, a, a group of rebel warriors to, to defeat the, the Seleucid army, right, to overthrow the Gentiles and, 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 you know, obtain victory for Israel. And so on December 25th, it was 164 B.C., he rode into Jerusalem on a mighty war horse, right? And so, and he entered the city to, to shouts of, Hosanna, Hosanna, people waving palm branches in the air, right? A similar scene to what we see today, right? And he, he immediately went straight to the temple, and he, he cleansed the temple. The, the Greeks, the, the Seleucids had, had desecrated the temple in, in horrific ways. And, and so he went in there, and he, he cleared out all the, the pagan altars and, and, and the Greek images of Greek gods. And so today we see something very similar happening with Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem, right? It's this, this similar scene, but what happens with Jesus is, is totally opposite than, than what happened with Judas, Judah Maccabee. And by the way, Judah ba- Maccabee's name was, Maccabee meant hammer, right? He was the hammer, and he cleansed that temple. And Jesus, is, his plan and, and, and the way he does things is, is is through peace and love. And so that's what we see here. So uh, chapter 11, as we're about to get into this, is, is beginning the, it's the uh, first chapter on the last week of Jesus' life, right? The, the Mark, the book of Mark, about one-third of the book of Mark is dedicated to that last week of Jesus' life. And that's because this last week is the, is the fulfillment, it's the climax of Jesus' ministry, but it's not the end, right? So this is so important that, that Mark would dedicate over a third because this is what Jesus has come to do, right? To, to give his life as a ransom for many, right? No one takes his life from him. He comes to lay it down. And, and that's why Mark zooms in on, these, on these, uh, these last seven days. So right here in, in verses 1 through 7, you see uh, Jesus sending his disciples 
to, to get this colt, right? To receive this, to go get this baby donkey. Right? And, and so what that shows is that Jesus is, is in sovereign control of all the events of his life, right? That he, he is orchestrating the events of his life, right? He knows all things, and he's able to know that there's a, there's a donkey out there and, and call his disciples to bring it to him, right? No one takes his life from him. He lays it down, and he's, he's, he's operating according to the plan of the Father. And then verse 8 through 11, we see this subtle imagery that Mark uses of, of Jesus entering into Jerusalem as king, right? If you, if you remember, Jesus has walked all the way to Jerusalem, but now he, he rides in, right? He rides in, and that's to, to symbolize that he is, the, he is the promised king. He is the coming king. Now, a king in ancient times, when they enter, what they would do is they would commandeer a, a beast of burden, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And, and that, that animal that no one had ever written was considered sacred, the only kind of animal fit for a king to ride. Right? So we see all this subtle imagery. And then, and then we see uh, Jesus entering into enthusiasm, enthusiasm and, and popularity. Now, this week was the Passover week. It was the week when the, when the Jews celebrated uh, God's deliverance from them out of Egypt, and uh, and so there was a, this the town, the Jerusalem was packed full of visitors. You see here when Jesus comes in, right? That he gets the king's welcome. People are laying their cloaks down. They're laying the branches down. They're they're shouting Hosanna, which means save us, save us. They're crying out for salvation, and they're saying, "Blessed he is uh, is the coming kingdom of our father David." which is, right, this messianic language that Jesus is, is the Messiah. He's the promised eternal king, right? So we, so we see all this. And then what Jesus does is he's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 says, and you can write it down and look at it later if you want. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? So Jesus fulfills a prophecy written hundreds of years before him. And so Jesus truly is king, but he's not the king that they expected, right? If you'll notice, Jesus doesn't come in like Judas Maccabeus with that, the mighty war horse. He comes in on a, on a humble baby donkey, Right? A humble baby donkey, something that would be ridden by a child. Right? Because Jesus is not coming to, to hammer the Gentiles, right? He's not coming with the hammer. He's coming to be hammered with nails on that cross. Right? That's the, the irony in all of this. Jesus is the one that's coming to be hammered with nails for the sins of mankind. And the same people who are who are shouting, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are the same people that are going to be shouting at the end of the week, crucify him. They're going to be shouting, crucify him. And, and I thought this was so kind of ironic, is look at how anticlimactic the ending of all this is, right? It would be expected that the Messiah is going to come in and wipe out the, the Gentiles, but what happens? 
at the end of this, Jesus gets to the temple, right? He gets there, and nothing happens, right? The crowd that mysteriously gathers so quickly is, is gone, poof. And then uh, he, he gets to the temple, and hey, it's getting late, and they head back out to Bethany. Isn't that interesting? Nothing happens. But so let, let's continue on. Let's see where, where this story is going to go here. I want to read uh, verses 12 through 14 here. It says here, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So if you've been here, coming here for a while, we've talked about this style of writing that Mark uses often in his scriptures. He uses a, a sandwich form of writing. It's called a Markin sandwich. And I, I believe that he does it seven times in his writings. And, and what, it is, the way, what Mark does is he sandwiches a story in between another story. Right? So he starts the story, and then he goes off to a completely different story, and then he ends the story. And, and the reason he does that is to illustrate the middle story. That's, that's Mark's writing style, and it, and it brings out much meaning and drama to, to the Scripture. And, and so that's what he's doing, and you could, you could call this a, a fig sandwich, because this middle story of actually when Jesus finally does go into the temple is sandwiched between the story of the fig tree. All right, so that's important to understand that style of writing to understand why is this story of the fig tree in there? You know, what is going on in the temple? You have to know that the fig sandwich, the fig tree story is, is bringing meaning into that, that middle story. All right, so because on this story we see the next day now, this is day two. They're heading back into Jerusalem, right? And, uh, and Jesus sees this fig tree from the distance, and the, and the Scripture tells us he's hungry, right? He's hungry, and he sees, the, he sees a tree with leaves that should have some kind of food on it, right? And so Jesus goes to it. There's nothing there. It's a, it's a fruitless tree, and Jesus curses the tree, right? Jesus curses the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, right? But the Scripture tells us this, this tree is uh, it's not in season. It's not the season for figs. And so, so many scholars have debated over the years, like, what is going on here? Is, is Jesus just, like, having a bad day? Is he being moody, irrational? People have struggled to figure out what, why, what is going on with Jesus. But uh, if you understand uh, the, the fig tree, it, because it had leaves, it should have had fruit on it that weren't in season. It should have had fruit in there that were in, in varying stages of, of ripening. For example, right now at my house, I have, I have an orange tree, I have a pomegranate tree, and I have a lemon tree. And all of my trees have fruit on them, but it's not seasoned. They're not ripe yet. And, but you can still eat them, because, and I know this because I go outside sometimes and I found Sophia eating pomegranates. And I'm like, what are you doing? That thing's not even ripe yet. She's like, it's still good. She's eating them out there. So the, Jesus was expecting to find some kind of fruit, even though it wasn't in season. And so that's why he curses the, the fig tree. 
right? It's a fruitless tree, and because it doesn't have any unripened fruit on there, it's not going to have any fruit when it comes to season, right? If my trees didn't have any unripened fruit, they wouldn't produce any fruit, and they'd be worthless, right? So that's, that's what's going on there. And, and uh, so Jesus is, uh, is using this, this story of the fig tree as an as a enacted parable of, of the, the temple that he's about to go to, right? The temple has leaves, and it's beautiful, right? Outwardly beautiful, but there's no fruit there. And Jesus is about to condemn the temple for being fruitless. All right, so let's, go, let's, go to, let's pick it up, verses 15 through 19 here. So, and they came to Jerusalem, and he, entered, uh, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who uh, bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a, a house of prayer for the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Right, so Jesus comes to the temple. Again, he's expecting to find fruit. And there's no fruit. There's no fruit. Jesus begins, John chapter 2 tells us more details. It tells us that he makes a, a whip of cords and, and begins driving people out of there. Right, he's, he's knocking over the seats of the guys selling pigeons. He's, he's turning over the money changers' tables. I mean, what a scene, huh? Well, that's got to be a, a, a crazy scene. And, and he, it says he, he stops you know, he stops everything. He stops the sale. Right? Why is Jesus so angry, you have to ask? Why? What, what's he so upset about? Well, he tells us, right? He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. This is supposed to be a, a, a and in particular, the reason he's upset is because they're in the court of the Gentiles. So the, the temple had outward courts that were designated for different, different groups of people that could go into those courts. Now, this place was for the Gentiles, the very people that the Jews hated, right? The very people who had been oppressing them, one nation after another had been oppressing them, and, and they hated the Gentiles. And so they're so flippant, and they didn't care. We're doing, we're doing our business right here in the middle of where, where Gentiles are supposed to be able to come and, and quiet prayer and, and reflection and, and worship God. Right, and receive his grace. But they can't come. They can't come. Right? The, the Jews were supposed to be the light to the nations. And they're they're keeping they're keeping the Gentiles out because because of their hate for them. And so there's crazy irony here, right? The the Messiah was expected to come and and subjugate the, the Gentiles. He was, ex- he was expected that when that Messiah comes, he's going to drive the Gentiles out of here, right? He's going to overthrow them and, and establish Israel back like it used to be. And instead, we find Jesus, right? He's not driving out the Gentiles, but he's, he's clearing out the temple for the Gentiles, for the nations, right? Because God loves all nations, tribes, tongues, and people. And, and so this is, this is huge. I mean, this would have blown their minds. This is not what, 
what the Messiah is supposed to do. And it says that the religious leaders begin, begin plotting to destroy Jesus. They begin plotting his death because the people are astonished and they're, and they're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid that they're going to they're gonna lose power and control. All right. So let's go back. Let's pick up on verse 20 and 21. We're going to go back to the end of the fig sandwich here. It says here, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Right? The fig tree that he has cursed has withered. Right? So the, that fig tree was a, was a visual parable for us of the fruitless temple. Right? It has withered from its roots. Right? It, it appeared, it grew up for a season, but it had no roots. And it withered. It reminds us of the parable of the seeds. Right? And we see Jesus is basically putting a hammer to the temple, right? He's putting, he's cutting the temple out at its roots, right? It will never produce fruit again, just like that, that fig tree. And that's, it's, be, and so just for you to understand the temple, the temple was the dwelling place of God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates man for perfect relationship with himself, Right? There's, there's relationship between God and, and creation and, and mankind. Right? Perfect peace, perfect shalom. And then what happens is, and, and Genesis chapter 3 tells us that, that Adam and Eve rebel against God. They believe Satan's lies. And they begin to pridefully try to control their own life. Right? They, they turn from God and, and sin comes into this world. Pain, sin, suffering, and death comes into this world. And and so God, being a gracious God, right, he's got a plan. And in Genesis 3, we get the first hope that, that one day a Savior would come, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of Satan. Right? God has a plan for, for redeeming and restoring his creation. And, and it began through Abraham, through the Jews. God saved the Jews, and he, he provided a way for them to come to God to come before God, to, to, to have fellowship with God once again and atone for their sins. And it came first through the, through the tabernacle, which was a, a tent. Was a, it was a temporary temple. And in the tabernacle, the, the presence of God dwelt in the midst of Israel. And then later on, it became the temple, right? That was their permanent structure that was, was built in Jerusalem. And so, so people could come and, and man could come before God once again. Right? They could come. They could receive forgiveness of sins. They could, they could, have, they could, have a, they could worship a holy God. Right? And, and so what Jesus is doing is he, and oh, and, and so what they would do is they would, at the temple, they would sacrifice innocent, the innocent animals. Right? The, the blood of an animal was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Right? The, it, it was meant to cover them, and, and the animal didn't save them. The animal didn't save them, but it, it was a sign of faith, that they were putting faith in God, that, that he would cover him, that he would forgive them. And so Jesus is doing away with that temple because 
the temple, all it, what it was really pointing forward to was Jesus, right? Jesus is the truer and better temple. In Jesus, the fullness of, of the glory of God dwells, right? Jesus is the presence of God, right? He came and, and he made his dwelling among mankind. He, he's the one that came to, to, to do an end of, to the, the problem of sin separating us from God. And so the, t- the temple's not needed anymore. And Jesus is going to do away with it because he's the temple. He's the new temple. And in the New Testament, after, after Jesus ascends back into, into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes upon his people, the new temple now is God's people. Right? The Scripture says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temples and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Right? We're the temples of God, but... So Jesus, all that Old Testament, all that sacrificial system was pointing forward to Jesus, the temple, the the image of the invisible God. And Jesus was not only the truer and better temple, but he was the truer and better temple sacrifice, right? All those animals that were sacrificed for all those years were pointing forward to the, the final sacrifice where the Lamb of God would come and lay down his life once and for all sinners right that's what that's what jesus's mission was to be the final sacrifice so you don't have to sacrifice animals so you don't have to go to a temple right god's spirit is is in all of his people right this intimacy that god brought through christ and through the holy spirit and 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 his and his work on that cross so that's why jesus says right uh, I, I, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was going to come and, and lay down his life to remove that sin barrier, to buy us out of our slavery to sin and, and set us free. And it truly is freedom to, to know Christ, to walk in Christ. All right. So let's finish up here, verses 22 to 25 here. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, this passage, and I planned on spending a little extra time here, is a classic prosperity gospel proof text. Probably the, the most popular one of them all. Other, if you're wondering, prosperity gospel, other names are Naban to claim it, uh, power of positive faith, or, or positive thinking. This is a, this is a, a, a theology, and it's a, and it's a false theology. But the prosperity teachers teach that Basically, based on this verse, that if, if you pray for whatever you want in faith, you will receive it. Whatever you want, right? And so here, here I got a quote for you from one of the prosperity teachers. You can ha- he says, you can have what you say. In fact, what you're saying is exactly what you're getting now. If you're living in poverty and lack and want, change what you're saying. It will change what you have. Right, so the prosperity teachers teach that if you're sick or you're not wealthy, right, you're in poverty, you got some 
suffering, trial, something bad going on, it's, it's your own fault, right? You lack faith. You're not praying prayers of faith is what, what they'll say, right? So they, so they believe all Christians should be healthy and wealthy and prosperous, right? And usually it only works for them because they're at the top of the pyramid scheme. So you have to ask, when we get difficult passages like this, we've got to ask, is this what this passage is truly saying? Right? You've got to think context, context, context. What, what's the context that this, this, these few verses here are, are sitting in? Right? How does this fit in the chapter or in the book? And then does this interpretation of what I'm reading this fit with the rest of Scripture, with the whole of Scripture? You have to test it. And, and if your interpretation of, of that text matches with what the rest of Scripture says, especially on the, on the clear Scriptures, then you're probably going to be uh, pretty right on, right? But instead, the prosperity's teachers, they, they take it out of context to, to pursue or to teach their own fleshly desires, right? They look for scriptures that fit their false, false gospel rather than being faithful to biblical interpretation. So let's look. What is the, what's the context of this scripture, right? Because it... Uh, if, if you're like me, when I first read that, I'm like, whoa, that seems kind of random. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, if you remember, the, the context of the second half of the book of Mark is, is focused on the mission of Jesus Christ, right? Three times from chapter 8 till, through 10, Jesus predicts that he's going to die on the cross and rise again. And all three times after that, we see the disciples misunderstanding the mission of Jesus. And instead of them, uh, you know, they, they resist Jesus, right? They, they want glory and wealth and power. And so all, time, all three times after Jesus does these predictions, they misunderstand. And then Jesus uses it as an opportunity to disciple them, to teach them what it means to be a disciple. So the first time, he says, if you want to be my disciple, he tells them to, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and follow me, right? We'll be willing to die for my sake, right? That's what Jesus is saying to them. That doesn't sound like it fits with, with prosperity, right? The second time, he says, uh, he calls us to lose our life for Jesus, right? He says, uh, if you want to save your life, you're going to need to lose it for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus. He even says, what good is it if a man gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Right? That doesn't sound like prosperity teaching. Third one, he says, you want to be great? Right? This was, I think this was last week. You want to be great? Be a servant. Right? If you want to be great, you want to be here, well, be a servant. Make yourself lower. You want to be first in my kingdom? Be a slave. Right? Take the lowest of low position. Right? Serving. Giving up your life. Losing your life for the gospel. Right? Not prosperity. Right? Jesus has not been, he's been teaching suffering for the glory of God is what he's been teaching. Even if you remember the story of the rich young ruler, right? Here's a man who's rich. He's moral. He's the one that seems like he has it all together. And what happens when he comes to Jesus? What do I have to do to enter in the kingdom, he tells Jesus? Jesus tells him, go sell everything you have, right? That's, 
That's the opposite of prosperity. Right? Go sell everything you have. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then he tells them, how hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom? Right? It's, it's, it's easier for a, a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Right? So there's nothing wrong with being rich, but, but Jesus' focus isn't on being rich. At least pr- prosperity, material rich. It's, it's about being rich with him and his grace and, and his mercy and, and walking according to his plans. So, if this is all about faith, by faith, getting God to do whatever you want, Jesus didn't have enough faith, right? Because if you, in a couple chapters, we're going to see Jesus, the night he's arrested, he, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus play, prays a, a, a more passionate prayer than any of us will ever pray. He prays to the point of sweating drops of blood, right? None of us pray like that. And he prays, God, it, if, it, it, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Right? He knows he's about to be arrested. He knows right, the time has come for him to die on the cross. And he's saying, Lord, if there's any way, take this from me right, to the Father. And does the Father take it? He says, no. And so Jesus says, yep, not my will be done, but your will be done. Right? And then when Jesus prayed, uh, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, when you pray, pray, my, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So, so Jesus always, it's not a demand before God. It's a request and, and a humble submission to God and his will when he prays. Now the way Mark writes is, he just writes kind of matter-of-factly. Matter he doesn't inc- include the, the kind of, but here's the kind of, the groundwork that, you know, how, how this works. Uh, he does that as well, if you remember, with the divorce passage. But that, that's Mark's writing style with that. So it's not about prosperity. So what does this mean? Verses 22 through 25. What does it really mean? Well, if you remember, Jesus now has just condemned the temple. He's called his disciples to follow him into suffering, and the disciples are, are struggling to accept his will, his mission. They're accept, the struggling to, to accept or even understand what he's about to do. They're about to have their whole world turned upside down as, as they see their leader, right? The, the one who they thought was the Messiah hanging on that cross. And so Jesus is saying, have faith. Have faith. Have faith. Faith is trusting God. Trust God. Trust me. And he wants them to pray. Pray and believe that, that God is able to do anything. Right? Pray that God is, is so powerful that he's able to, to even move mountains. Right? He wants them to pray big, faith-filled prayers. It's not about manipulating God. It's about trusting God in their circumstance, in the midst of their, their trials and suffering that they're about to to endure, right? And it's not how great their faith is. It's about how great the object of their faith is, right? How big their God is, right? And so he's, like Joe kind of said, right? They need a telescope to see how big their God is. And so that's what he's saying. Pray and believe that God is able, you know? Sometimes 
a lot of times we pray and we don't believe that God's able, right? But he is able, right? He's sovereign and he's in control and he can do anything, right? And then he also warns them to, to forgive, right? When you stand praying, I want you to, to forgive, right? Forgive, uh, unforgiveness can create barriers between man and God. So forgive other people and pray great faith-filled prayers and trust me, right? Trust that God can do anything, that none of our problems are too big for God. Trust that God is, is great, which means He is in control. He's in control of all things, right? He, he sovereignly ordains all of our circumstances in our life, right? He's in control of, of your checkbook or your job or, or your kids or your marriage. God is in control of all things, and, and, and we, can, we should trust Him just like His disciples need to trust Him right here. Right, and, and and we can relinquish control of our life to God because He's great, right? And we can trust in God because He is He's glorious. He's the most powerful being in all the universe. Uh, I always talk about God's glory as God is the the heavyweight champion of the universe, right? He's in control. He's ordaining all things, and and so be, if He's in control, we don't have to fear anything. We don't have to fear people. We don't have to fear circumstances. And his disciples don't have to, have to fear the circumstances that they're about to face because their God is glorious, right? And he's, he's the heavyweight champion who, who defeats Satan, sin, and death on that cross and, and his resurrection, right? And we know that God, is, that God is good, and we don't have to look elsewhere. So we can trust God because he's good, and we don't need prosperity to satisfy us. We don't need anything even though our hearts struggle to believe that, we don't need anything, no cars, houses, whatever. All we need is God. He's good enough. He's able to, to satisfy us even if we lose it all, right? What we gain by losing it all is, is infinite compared to what we're ever called to lose for his sake, right? And so we can trust also that, that God is gracious, Right? God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We just got to trust Him, trust in His, His grace, trust that, that God has made a way for all of us to come to Him, to know Him, to receive His grace. That It's not about what we need to do, but it's our, what, what Jesus Christ has done. Right? Jesus makes the way. We don't, the gospel isn't do better, try harder. Right? It's, it's trust Jesus who's done it all already. Right? And so we can trust God, have faith, trust Him, and pray huge prayers because He's able. Right? We need to stop telling uh, God how big our problems are, but tell our problems how big our God is. Right? If you can shift your mindset right there to having a big God who's in control, and He knows what's going on in your life, and He's in control of it, and all I have to do is trust Him and see what He has for me in this, then, then we can stand on, on solid ground in Him. All right, we can walk in true freedom. So I just encourage you, pray big, pray big prayers. Believe that God can answer them. And then at the end, you know, not yet, God, not my will be done, but your will be done. I trust you that even if you say no, that you know better than me, right? It takes more to trust God when he says no than it does when you, when you get everything you want. All right, so let me pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, 
I uh, just thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for how big you are, Lord. Help us see, have a big view of you, Lord, that you're big and we're small. You're sovereign in control, we're not. Thank you, Lord, that you came and did away with the temple system. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. You're here with us, indwelling your people, your spirit, Lord. Thank you that you made a way. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.